0: everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Undead Airlock, a weekly podcast trying to put a bit more horror knowledge and spooky fun into your life. I am, of course, your exhausted host, Hannah Selector. I know, I know, I'm always tired. This time I really mean it, though. I have been busy, busy, busy. But you don't really care about that, do you? Of course not. So, moving right along, and not explaining why everything has been so late recently... Um, I hope you guys all enjoyed our interview with Tony Burgess last week. I know I did. I am so happy it turned out well and that we fixed that little audio hiccup that we had there. I hope to get lots more creators on the show, so if you're a horror creator and want to chat or promote your latest project or maybe drop some specific favorite horror knowledge on us, let me know. I'll make it happen. We'll make a show out of it. It'll be fun. Uh, this week, though, it's just little old me. Yeah, I can hear the disappointed groans already. But um, we're going to try out our first ever creature feature episode. How did I pick which creature to talk about when there are so many great ones? Well, there was a Twitter poll. There were choices. Russia was not involved. It was all very fair. And at the end of it, the results of that poll were. Dun-dudah! Wendigos! I'm not kidding. Hooray! Hannah's favorite monster. Uh, sorry, William, your Yurei suggestion was excellent. Don't worry, I put a pin in it. Japanese ghosts and monsters are my jam. So, moving right into the actual show, what are Wendigos? Apart from being Hannah Selector's absolute favorite monster, well, according to Algonquin folklore, the Wendigo, or windigo with an I, is a mythical cannibal monster. Say that five times fast. Mythical cannibal monster or an evil spirit native to the northern forests of the Atlantic coast and great lake regions of Canada and the U.S. A wendigo may appear as a monster with some human characteristics, or as a sort of spirit who has taken over the body of a human being and made them more monstrous by that possession. Historically, wendigos are associated with uh, cultural taboos such as cannibalism, murder, unsatisfiable greed and all of the associated behaviors of those vices and issues. The Wendigo is part of a traditional belief system of several of the Algonquin-speaking tribes across the United States and Canada, particularly the... Everyone please bear with me. Oh my gosh, I am trying so hard, I'm gonna try so hard to pronounce all of these native words correctly. I've actually brought up pronunciation guides, I'm doing my absolute best here, but probably it's, it's going to be bad. Anyway, <laughs> these tribes include the Ojibwe, the Salto, the Cree, the Neskapi, and the Ainu people. Descriptions vary from tribe to tribe, from people to people, but common in all of these cultures is the idea that the Wendigo is, is an evil, supernatural, cannibalistic being. And Wendigos were always associated with and spoke of in connection with the cold, The northern Pacific region's winter, famine, starvation, which is what drives the Wendigo's desperate and aberrant behavior. The lack of food, the lack of hospitable territory, and just a general lack of resources. Basil Johnston, who is an Ojibwe scholar and teacher from northern Ontario, gives a description of the Wendigo as follows. The Wendigo was gaunt to the point of emaciation, its desiccated skin pulled tightly over its bones, with its bones pushing out against its skin, its complexion the ash-gray of death, and its eyes pushed back deep into their sockets. The Wendigo looked like a gaunt skeleton recently disinterred from the grave. What lips it had were tattered and bloody. Unclean and suffering from separations of the flesh, the Wendigo gave off a strange and eerie odor of decay and decomposition, of death and corruption. Quick aside, Mr. Johnston is just a lovely man who deserves a lot, a lot of credit. He was a high school teacher who taught at Earl Haig Secondary School in Ontario from 1962 to 1969. After that, he took up a position in the Ethnology Department of the Royal Ontario Museum. Uh, He focused his 25 years with the museum on the regeneration of lost languages, values, and beliefs of the Anishinaabe heritage. Basil Johnston was also responsible for developing a series of Ojibwa language courses on tape and in print. He believed that traditional language education was necessary for understanding Indigenous culture, and went to a great deal of trouble to make sure that those languages were preserved properly and could be taught to future generations. He's written many, many informative books, um, most of them all on Native culture and language and belief systems, a few noteworthy ones worth reading. The Manitoes, The Spiritual World of the Ojibwe, The Bear Walker and Other Stories, and Tales the Elders Told, Ojibwe Legends. Basil died in 2015, unfortunately, um, but before his death he donated his work, photographs, letters, papers, all sorts of things to the McMaster University Library to be used by researchers in their archives. So his legacy lives on, and we are grateful for what he's done. Okay. Back to monsters and not delightful professors. Wendigos in Ojibwe, Eastern Cree, West Main, Swampy Cree, Neskapi, and Ainu lore are often described as being just huge, absolutely gigantic, bigger than people, much bigger than people. In these cultures, when a Wendigo ate another person, when it committed the act of cannibalism that precipitated it becoming a Wendigo and continuing in its path as a Wendigo, It would grow in proportion to what it had just consumed, so it would double in size and this would create the cycle that would cause the wendigo to never be full, that created its ravenous spirit. As it grew, it could never fill itself up enough, and when it tried, it continued to grow, increasing that insatiable hunger and causing starvation. Now this is a characteristic that usually does not appear in other Algonquin cultures. The Wendigo is seen, because of this, as a sort of physical embodiment of all of these vices of greed, of excess, of gluttony. It is never satisfied, no matter how many people it consumes, and it is always prowling, looking for new victims. In a few specific traditions, people who became overpowered by greed, even if it wasn't associated with an act of cannibalism, could also turn into Wendigos. So, The Wendigo myth has sort of served as a metaphor for encouraging the spirit of selflessness, of cooperation, and encouraging people to act in the good of the community, rather than for selfish gain. Certain legends also say that humans could be turned into Wendigos by being in contact with a Wendigo for too long, or for being stalked by one simply the influence of a Wendigo. So as I said, in addition to being a cannibalistic monster in a very literal sense, many Native and First Nation people also understood the Wendigo as a concept, as a metaphor. Conceptually, a Wendigo can apply to any sort of person, idea, or political movement that is defined by a drive towards self-gratification, toward greed, or to consumption and taking advantage of. These sorts of traits are the kinds of things that destroy societies and were the things that the Wendigo metaphor was meant to deter. Ojibwe scholar Brady DeSanti, who is a professor still at the University of Nebraska at Omaha, asserts that the Wendigo can be understood as a marker indicating a person who is imbalanced both internally and toward the larger community of human and spiritual beings around them. The Wendigo is at odds with the idea of community. And people who are afflicted by a Wendigo spirit not only destroy themselves, but also destroy everything around them. So, in addition to characterizing people who have destructive tendencies, the Wendigo metaphor and the Wendigo concept can also be used to evaluate movements or events that have similar negative effects on the societies and the people that they are around. Chris Shedler said that the figure of the Wendigo represents consuming forms of exclusion and assimilation through which groups dominate other groups. So, this application is especially effective in describing colonialism, and allows Native people to describe it and its agents as Wendigos, since the process of colonialism ejected people from their land and threw the natural world around them out of balance. DeSanti points to the 1999 horror film Ravenous as an illustration of this argument, equating the cannibal monster, the Wendigo, to American colonialism and manifest destiny. There's a character who articulates these sentiments in the movie. He says, Thousands of gold-hungry Americans over the mountains in search of new lives. This country is seeking to be whole, stretching out its arms and consuming all it can, and we merely follow. But the Wendigo concept can apply to other situations than just Native American-European relations. It may also serve as a metaphor explaining any pattern of domination by which groups subjugate and dominate or violently destroy and displace. Joe Lockhart, who is an English professor at Arizona State University, argued that Wendigos are agents of social cannibalism. Who know no provincial or national boundaries. All human cultures have been visited by shape-shifting Wendigos. Their visitations speak to the inseparability of human experience. National identity is irrelevant to this borderless horror. Lockhart's ideas explain that Wendigos are an expression of a basic but dark aspect of human nature, our natural drive to take and to be greedy and to consume with disregard for other people. Do you guys see why I love Wendigos so much? I mean, not only in the literal sense is it an absolutely cool monster, But it's such a brilliant concept in general, and so totally true. I mean, in so many senses, Wendigos are real, aren't they? And not just because the metaphor works brilliantly. Let's talk about Wendigo psychosis. So, the legend of the Wendigo has also given name to a controversial, emphasis on controversial, modern medical concept called Wendigo psychosis. Wendigo psychosis has been described by psychiatrists as a culture-bound syndrome with symptoms that include intense cravings for human flesh and a fear of becoming a cannibal. In some native communities, environmental destruction and insatiable greed are also seen as manifestations of Wendigo psychosis. There are a few references to historical accounts of Wendigo psychosis It's been reported that humans become possessed by the Wendigo spirit after being in a situation of needing food and having no other choice besides cannibalizing someone. In 1661, something called the Jesuit Relations reported... Future Hannah here. The Jesuit Relations was a chronicle of the Jesuit missions in New France, which were the territories that were colonized by the French in the United States that are, of course, now no longer in existence or... Rather, they have very different names. You know, like Louisiana or New Mexico. What caused us greater concern was the intelligence that met us upon entering the lake. Namely, that the men deputed by our conductor for the purpose of summoning the nations of the North Sea and assigning them a rendezvous where they were to await our coming had met their death the previous winter in a very strange manner. Those poor men, according to the purport given to us, were seized with an ailment unknown to us, but not very unusual among the people we were seeking. They are afflicted with neither lunacy, hypochondria, nor frenzy, but have a combination of all of these species of disease, which affects their imaginations and causes them a more than canine hunger. This makes them so ravenous for human flesh that they pounce upon women, children, and even upon men, like veritable werewolves, and devour them voraciously without being able to appease or glut their appetite, ever seeking fresh prey, and the more greedily, the more they eat. This ailment attacked our deputies, and, as death is the sole remedy among those simple people for checking such acts of murder, they were slain in order to stay the course of their madness. Now, apart from that chilling article, there are two pretty famous reported cases of wendigo psychosis. The first took place in 1878 and is the story of the Plains Cree trapper from Alberta named Swift Runner. During a particularly difficult winter, Swift Runner and his family were starving. His oldest son was the first one to die. They were about 25 miles from an emergency food supply at a Hudson Bay Company post. But Swift Runner first butchered and ate his wife and his five remaining children. Because Swift Runner cannibalized his family so close to an emergency food supply, and because he killed and consumed every bit of those people, it was assumed that Swift Runner's case was not a case of pure cannibalism as a last resort, but rather the actions of a man who was suffering from Wendigo psychosis. Swift Runner did confess to his crimes, and he was executed by authorities at Fort Saskatchewan. The second well-known case involving Wendigo psychosis was that of Jack Fiddler, who was an OG Cree chief and medicine man known for hunting and defeating Wendigos. Unfortunately, in most cases, this entailed killing people with Wendigo psychosis, and this was how his reputation was gained. Eventually, at the age of 87, Jack Fiddler was tried for the murder of a Cree woman. He pled guilty, but he defended himself by saying that the woman was on the verge of becoming a Wendigo and that she was possessed by the evil Wendigo spirit, so he had killed her before she murdered other members of the tribe. In addition to this woman, Fiddler claimed that he had killed at least 13 other Wendigos during his lifetime, meaning 13 other people he believed to be possessed by a Wendigo spirit. As a result, in 1907, Jack Fiddler and his brother Joseph were arrested by Canadian authorities for homicide. Jack committed suicide in prison, But Joseph was tried and sentenced to life. Ultimately, Joseph got a pardon, but he died three days later in jail after receiving the news. Naturally, such a strange psychological phenomenon generated a lot of interest among Western ethnographers, scholars, psychologists, and anthropologists, and it led to a lot of controversy around the 1980s about the validity of these reports and of Wendigo psychosis as a legitimate disorder. Many researchers said that pretty much wendigo psychosis was a fabrication, the result of naive anthropologists taking stories related to them at face value without observation. Other scholars say, though, that a number of credible eyewitness accounts both by Algonquin people and others is evidence that wendigo psychosis was actually a historical psychological phenomenon. The frequency of wendigo psychosis diagnosis dropped almost entirely in the 20th century, though and you are highly unlikely to hear about any cases today. But what about Wendigos in pop culture? Although Wendigos in pop culture are usually distinct from how they appear in traditional native lore, there are quite a lot of them. The first and probably most notable appearance of a Wendigo in any sort of media is that often talked about on this podcast story, The Wendigo by Algernon Blackwood. That was published in 1910 and is a novella about a group of trappers and their native guide who go off into the canadian woods in search of furs and instead encounter a mysterious beast algernon blackwood's wendigo story is considered to have inspired most subsequent stories about wendigos especially novels august Derlis, the thing that walked in the wind And his Ithiqua stories, all published between 1933 and 1941, are credited with Blackwood's influence. These are actually part of the Cthulhu mythos, and Future Hannah has totally got me on that whole Ithiqua thing that I'm not recalling off the top of my head right now. Future Hannah's back! Did you miss me? According to Ye old Internet and the Cthulhu mythos, Ithiqua is one of the Great Old Ones and manifests as a terrible giant with a human shape and glowing red eyes. He is believed to prowl the Arctic Waste, hunting down unwary travelers and slaying them gruesomely, and is said to have inspired the Native American legend of the Wendigo and possibly the Yeti. Take it away, past me. Now, in turn, Durlith's stories are said to have inspired Stephen King's novel, Pet Cemetery*, wherein there is a Wendigo lurking in the woods near the Native burial ground where all of the pets are coming back from. This Wendigo is described as a gruesome, smiling creature with dead eyes, ears that look like horns, and a smoke that pours from its nostrils and mouth. Now, Chippewa author Louise Erdick's novel The Roundhouse won a National Book Award and depicts a situation where an individual person becomes a Wendigo. The novel describes its primary antagonist, a rapist whose violent crimes desecrate a sacred site, as a Wendigo who has to be killed because he threatens the reservation's safety, a selfish act that destroys the community around him. Perfect Wendigo story. Oh, and we talked about Von Hardacker's novel, Wendigo, which was in the best of 2017 episode. Now, the Wendigo doesn't only appear in books, it also crops up in comics. Particularly notable might be the Wendigo's appearance in mainstream Marvel comics. Um, The monster is a result of a curse that afflicts those who commit acts of cannibalism in parts of Canada. The Wendigo first appeared in Marvel Comics in issue number 162 of The Incredible Hulk, which came out in April of 1973. The Wendigo fights against The Incredible Hulk as well as the Wolverine. It's pretty nifty, if you want to check that out. There are also Wendigos in other comic books, right, future Hannah? Get on this, and also Web Comics. Good gracious, I don't pay me enough. So, as far as graphic novel stories about Wendigos go, you can check out The Curse of the Wendigo by Matthew Misself, Or The Last Winter by Larry Fessenden. And as far as webcomics are concerned, I've already mentioned it, I know, but you can check out Lies Within for a newish horror webcomic that includes a character who is also a Wendigo. Now let's see if past me can handle maybe finishing the show on her own. Creatures based upon Wendigos or actual Wendigos also appear in a number of horror movies. There's Dark Was the Night, which I watched last year. Starring the brilliant Kevin Durand, whom I love, and not just because he was Vasily Fett in The Strain. Some people have said that the monsters in The Descent are based on Wendigos. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that sentiment, but The Descent is a decent watch, I guess, so there you go. Wendigos also crop up pretty frequently in television series, Supernatural, Blood Ties, Charmed, Grim, Sleepy Hollow, Teen Wolf, and Hannibal in which a creature matching the Wendigo appears in several episodes. And I'm just going to go ahead and throw it out there that the beast in Over the Garden Wall gives me some serious Wendigo vibes, not just because of the horns, but because of the concept that he represents. If you guys haven't watched Over the Garden Wall, it is just a beautiful, dark little story. takes place over 10 short episodes, and you should absolutely watch it. And then you should talk to me about it, because I love Over the Garden Wall. And last but certainly not least, Wendigos in games. Wendigos appear in a number of video games, including most famously and most recently Until Dawn, a game whose central story is focused around Wendigos and the Wendigo mythos, as a sister and her friends journey into the mountains together after the death of her twin. Wendigos also appear in classic PlayStation game that I loved, The Legend of Dragoon, also the Secret World and the World of Warcraft series. They also make an appearance in tabletop games like Dungeons and Dragons, and a cute little kids game called The Legend of the Wendigo that you could definitely turn into a Christmas present for the little horror fan in your life. It's really simple and fun to play and easy for kids to understand without being too scary or inappropriate. In case anyone's interested in doing some further reading or learning about the Wendigo, here's a couple of other things that you can check out. The Wechuge is a creature appearing in the legends of Athabascan peoples and is similar in concept to the Wendigo, and sort of enhances your Wendigo knowledge, if you will. It is said to be a person who's possessed or overwhelmed by the power of one of the ancient spirit animals. The Wechuge were crafty, intelligent animals of giant sizes who retained their power despite being transformed into normal-sized animals of the present day. Uh, Robin Ridlington came across these stories while speaking with the Dene of the Peace River region in Western Canada. Much like the Wendigo, the Weichuge is trying to eat people and tries to lure its prey away with cunning. In one folktale, the Weichuge is made of ice and very strong and is only killed by being thrown on a campfire and kept there overnight until it has melted. If you're interested in a more detailed exploration of Wendigos as related to the concept of colonialism and its effects on our nation, see Jack D. Forbes' 1978 book Columbus and Other Cannibals. This is a great read, really informative. Not to mention the many academic papers that exist on the internet written about the metaphorical concept of the Wendigo. Or you can just ask me about Wendigos. Ask me about literature. Ask me about my day. Do it. I'm so nice. Talk to me, guys short one, but that's the end of another episode. Remember, I want this to be the best podcast that it can possibly be, and I can only do that with your help. Get in touch with me and let me know what you want to hear about. You can reach me by email at hannahselector, that's h-a-n-n-a-h-s-e-l-e-c-t-o-r at gmail.com, or on Twitter at Hannah Selector. I like to think that I'm getting better at Twitter, but I still don't feel like there's a lot of engagement. So if there's something that I'm supposed to be doing on Twitter that I'm not doing, I guess, tell me, maybe? I don't know. Maybe don't. I'm very self-conscious about my Twitter presence. I feel like it sucks. Anyway, check out the cast on SoundCloud, Acast, Pocket Cast, iTunes, and don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe if you feel so inclined. Major thank you to everybody who's done so so far. All of the works mentioned in today's cast will be available on Twitter in the form of our mention-slash-recommended recap, and I promise I will get back on the last two episodes' recaps as well before I post this one. I know those are still missing at the time of this recording. As the end approaches, it's time again for our Monster Masher sign-off, a set of lines from a piece of horror media that let you know how you can defeat the evil and get out alive. Don't forget, if you recognize the lines in our sign-off, hit me up on Twitter and let me know you figured it out. Or, if you have a monster masher that you'd like to hear, get at me and let me know and we'll make it happen. Simpson, the student of divinity, was who arranged his conclusions probably with the best, though not most scientific, appearance of order. Out there, in the heart of unreclaimed wilderness, they had surely witnessed something crudely and essentially primitive. Something that had somehow survived the advance of humanity and had emerged terrifically, betraying a scale of life monstrous and immature... He envisaged it, rather, as a glimpse into prehistoric ages, when superstitions, gigantic and uncouth, still oppressed the hearts of men, when the forces of nature were still untamed, the powers that may have haunted a primeval universe not yet withdrawn. To this day, he thinks of what he termed years later in a sermon, savage and formidable potencies lurking behind the souls of men, not evil perhaps in themselves, yet instinctively hostile to humanity as it exists. Until next time, everybody.